Roxy, and I am nine and a half years old. My name is um, Sylvie, and I am nine and three fourths. My <laughs> name is Florence, and I am nine and more than half. Good morning, Liz. Good morning, Olivia. Welcome, everybody, to Women, Magic, and Power. Thank you so much for joining us. This is the finale of season one. Mm -hmm. We did it. Here we go. One season in the books. Done. And to finish this one also, we're going to shake it up a little and we're going to focus on you, Liz. Hi. Welcome. Oh, boy. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> yeah. The, the spotlight on Liz today and a little bit of the little women too here and there. Mm. So you'll hear some of their answers because we check on them and see how they're doing and, you know, if we need to adjust on our lessons. Mm -hmm. The wisdom of the youth. Uh-huh. Okay. Just FYI, everyone, we've done this episode almost three <laughs> times now. <laughs> we keep getting um, challenged by the universe and the forces out there. And Liz is laughing because this has been painful. <laughs> this episode, for some reason, does not want to record. Um, technology hasn't been our friend. And I think we figure it out finally. And we also shaped it differently every time. So yeah. now we decided to do it about Liz. So Liz. third time's the charm. We hope. Fingers crossed. <laughs> Welcome, girls. Thanks so much, girls, for joining us. Thank you. So, is there anything that you think girls can't do? No. No. Mm -hmm. I think if you put your mind to it, you can achieve anything. Yeah, I agree with Except so like, like flying and <laughs> um, girls can do anything. What if I told you that when we were kids, I mean, not Liz, because Miss Liz over here was raised by a powerhouse. Mm. But um, the rest of us girls heard a lot that you needed to get married and have kids. What if someone told you that now? I would be like, no, no. no. We don't have to make kids. But you're not supposed to tell us that because we're the ones that make you. Yeah, we control our bodies. Yeah. Like, if we don't want to get married, we don't have to get married. If we're in love with someone and we want to get married, we can get married. Yeah, and if you don't want to have kids, that's fine too. And you wouldn't have to give up one thing for the other. You can have it all. Mm-hmm. Right? Because mm -hmm. girls can do When you encounter something that is hard, what are some things that help you get through that situation? Sometimes um, in my journal, that's kind of like my diary, I write down different, like kind of like a bullet list of mm -hmm. different situations that might happen to like solve the problem. Yeah. Okay. That's good. Um, sometimes um, if it's like a hard situation that makes me mad, I kind of just like Bunny breathe bread. and kind of, I'm a good negotiator, but I'm not that good. So you use negotiation and breathing. Yes. That's good. Um, what I do is I have a little checklist with me. I can um, sing songs that I know very well. Mm-hmm. Um, or I have this little car that is everything that makes me feel better that I use. You open that up and remind yourself of the things that 
make you feel better? I also say that like I am safe, I am okay, and I am silly. Mm, that's funny. <laughs> or sometimes I can like there's like I have this in summertime or when it's warm. We have this um, path outside of our house, and sometimes I just go either with my dogs or by myself um, and walk um, around and think about what I need to do, or I just am, I just solve it like head first. A little walk in nature. Little things can make you feel powerful, like just like finishing a book or something like that. Like whenever I finish, mm. I feel like, yes, I did that. That took a while, but I did it. Yeah, you stuck to it. That's I, important. I like complimenting myself at school. Like today, I had art, and we finished a little project, and I was like, "Yeah, I did that." <laughs> <laughs> Listeners, I wish you could see the face that went with that mm-hmm. comment. So, what are some other things that make you guys feel powerful? I like hanging out with my friends, such as them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Or Remember I, I like hanging out with friends that make me laugh, like. Mm. Yeah, whenever I'm feeling down, I call them too. Um, Yeah, connection. What do you guys think about magic? I think magic is in every single person. They just need to find their own magic. That's not like real magic. Not like fake magic. That's like... Not a magician. Water powers or Mm -hmm. not, Not like that. Like the magic to like... Everybody has a different type of magic. Or superpower... Yeah, not really like that. Yeah. There's quotation marks on Yeah, we get it. Everybody has a superpower. Yes. Guess what could be a superpower? Kindness. Yeah, like, mm-hmm. that's what I was thinking. Kindness is like, my superpower. I used to have a shirt that said that. <laughs> I um think that laughing is my superpower. <laughs> yes, it is definitely a <laughs> superpower. Um, I think that, like, Hobbies or something that you're good at or something you enjoy doing um, could be like your own magic because it, it like has a place in your heart because you like to do it. Do you so think I, that they could go hand in hand with power? Like yeah. that hobby that's magical for you can actually also make you powerful? Yeah. I just think that everybody has something that has a place in their heart that is their magic. Mm. Thank you so much, girls. Is there anything you'd like to share before we wrap this up? Uh, Thank you for having us. Unicorns are the best. I want to be someone that helps dogs. Dogs are my favorite animal. My favorite color is like a mint. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Thank you. (laughs) Do anything you put your mind to. Just remember, you can do it and everyone can. If they try really hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, thank you for having us. <laughs> yeah, thank you for out. having us. Thank, thank you, you for joining us. We Bye. love you. We thank the little women for lending us their voice. And don't go anywhere because Liz's story starts right now. Um, okay, so I am a Jersey girl, born and bred. I was born when my parents were living at McGuire Air Force Base. Where is that, McGuire? It's in South Jersey. Okay. Um, So my dad was in the Air Force. He was an attorney in the JAG Corps. And I don't know how long he was in for, maybe four years. And then he was in the reserves for quite a long time. My mother 
um, had just finished law school and she took the bar exam when she was like eight and a half months pregnant with me. <laughs> so I was almost born in the um, front seat of a Volkswagen, you know, a 1974 Volkswagen bug. <laughs> but they made it to the hospital. <laughs> we lived yeah. in Trenton for a bit. When I was ready to go to school, my parents were trying to figure out, um, were they going to send me to Catholic school or were they going to move to a different school district? And they did not send me to Catholic school. Probably a good choice. Um, they were both products of Catholic school in the 50s and 60s um, when mass was you know, still in Latin and the nuns walked around with rulers and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So that informed their decision making. So we moved to Titusville and they bought the great, this great house that they're still in. And it was an amazing place to grow up. Big old house with three and a half acres and a pond and a pool and it backed up to the state park. Um, and the Italian part of your family, is it your dad or your mom? My mom. So my mom's Irish and Sicilian. My parents' generation for sure. And then, you know, my generation, not quite as much, but a little bit, you know, everybody's still very in touch with their immigrant roots because all my great grandparents came here in the early part of the 20th century. My Sicilian grandmother moved in with us and my Irish great uncle <laughs> also moved in with us. And I think when we first moved in, my mom's youngest brother was there. He was still finishing high school. Anyway, so they moved to Titusville in this great spot. I grew up there and I had a really stable and loving and fun childhood. Not to say that there were never challenges or bad things that happened because life is full of those, but Mm -hmm. I wasn't really sheltered from them. And so it's just sort of like, okay, this is how life happens. Having multiple generations in the same house was pretty fantastic because... You know, my grandmother and my Uncle Joe, you know, they would sit at the dinner table and tell stories of growing up during the Great Depression and Mm. what it was like when you still had an outhouse and all these things that I think just helped to lend a bit of perspective Mm -hmm. um, to the life that I was living, which was very different than that. Growing up in a multi-generational household, I think, was really formative for me and um religion and spirituality how did that show up back then in your life (laughs) so everyone was catholic my parents didn't really go to church they felt like they had had enough church Mm -hmm. in their upbringing uncle joe did not go to church he had lots of pithy very irish sort of things to say about the church and my grandmother was very devout she was at church three or four times a week. She said her novena to St. Jude. She did the adoration, which is almost like a meditation kind of thing that mm-hmm. happens in the Catholic Church. So she was very devout. And even though she didn't always agree with some of the stances that the institution of the church had, she was very rooted in her faith. She was a person of really genuine faith and connection to a higher power. And it sounds like it had a big impact on you. I think so. Yeah, it, it was amazing to see that kind of connection. Um, and because of her, I got to go to CCD and do my confession and my communion and my confirmation. 
And very early on, I remember going, I remember my dad taking me to church, I think when we still lived in Trenton, so I was probably three or four years old. And the church that he took me to sometimes, was a big old church called St. Anthony's, and behind the altar there was a cross, but there was also this big mural of God, you know, reaching out with the, you know, the finger pointing, Mm -hmm. and it terrified me. (laughs) And listening to the priest and looking at that artwork, I remember thinking, wow, I better be good or God is just going to come through that wall and smite me right here. (laughs) And (laughs) so then when I got older and I started going to CCD, I had a lot of questions. Yeah. And the CCD teachers did not like the questions. Oh, I bet they didn't. Um, And I always wanted to know why we weren't actually reading the Bible, why we were working out of these, you know, little bullshit notebooks, you know, that had been made by some company for CCD classes. And, you know, if you're Catholic, you know that we don't really read the Bible as Catholics. (laughs) Um, Even then, like, I wanted to go to the primary source um, and there was none of that. So I kind of absorb, I think I absorbed the rituals and the appreciation for ritual and the comfort of ritual but I really wasn't buying the whole story. Well, also, I think that the fact that you already had that kind of like diversity at your house, right? Because mm-hmm. like, your grandmother was the devout one, but then your parents were like, yeah, we're over that. Mm-hmm. That also allows to open the door a little bit to be like, wait, it, there isn't just one path, right? Right, right. Very much so. And it was very clear that the Catholicism piece for the people in my family who weren't my grandmother was still important culturally, mm-hmm. but not necessarily as a matter of personal faith. So that's sort of how I, it played into how I grew up. So um, I, you know, I had my childhood here and then I went to college in Rhode Island. She says lightly, you went to Brown. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Brown and this podcast is named after a course that I took at Brown. Um, that was taught by Robert Matheson, who he taught magic in the Middle Ages and women, magic, and power. And I learned a lot of things at Brown about different religions and different spiritual traditions, both historically and in practice. And I took classes in early medieval history, which was all about the early church before Constantine. And that really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And I took classes in Kabbalah and Taoism and the history and practice of Buddhist meditation, where, you know, we did academic and intellectual exploration of all these different traditions. Did any one of them stick out for you more? In the Buddhist tradition? No, in all of these practices that you were doing. Certainly the women and magic business resonated with me Mm -hmm. very deeply because you could see how different women historically claimed power through these spiritual movements. And that resonated a lot. Um, Also the Taoists, because the Taoists don't really have, they don't personify the divine, Mm -hmm. which was something I always struggled with with Christianity, because to me the divine is not something that can be personified. Mm -hmm. And the Taoists just sort of have this framework of, you know, this is the way. Be the grass that bends in the breeze and see what happens. Yeah. So those resonated with me. Um, But I think what 
my biggest takeaway from all the different traditions that I studied academically was that the mystics held the most appeal, the mystic traditions of each tradition, the mystic people within each tradition, and that everybody, no matter the trappings that you put on it, everyone who is searching for the divine or searching for a connection to the divine is looking for the same thing. Yeah. Right. And the rituals are different and the language is different, but it's many wells all drilled down to access the same source. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. But that also like helps to open up your mind, right? Because then there's no right or wrong or, you know, who has the real truth or whatever. Yes. So um, I know you said that your mom was a judge and your dad was a lawyer Mm -hmm. and you're an only child. Mm -hmm. So how was that? Do you feel like, because it's very powerful to have a a woman, a role model, like you have your your grandmother in the house, you have both grandmothers in the house, then you have your mom who's a judge. And I'm sure that when you were a kid, she was pretty busy because that's the hype of her career, right? So Yeah, and she wasn't a judge when I was a kid, but she was a corporate attorney. Uh, so <laughs> she, yeah, I mean, my mother is totally badass and unapologetically so. Yeah. You know, she kept her name when she got married in 1973, which doesn't, shouldn't seem like such a radical act, mm-hmm. but it kind of was. It totally was. At that time. Yeah. Uh, and so she, yeah, I mean, she was powerful. And my grandmother who lived with us was powerful in a completely different way. You know, on the surface, she was much more traditional, but, you know, she had crazy inner strength that just kept her going and nobody messed with her. Yeah, I feel like you've inherited that. (laughs) (laughs) So listeners, you know, many of you don't know me, but... (laughs) We had a friend over a couple of weeks ago and we were watching the Oscars and all these Oscar speeches were making me cry. The friend looked at me and she said, you're crying? I said, yes, you know, it's emotional. It's, it really hits you in the feels. She said, I didn't picture you as a crier. That's not how you present to the world. <laughs> and I don't think about how I present to the world very much because that just seems pointless and exhausting to me. I think that there's something that you inherited or that you, you know, were surrounded by, which is this empowerment from the very beginning. So there's no doubt of who you are and who you're not. And then at the same time, there's this soft side of you that not a lot of people get a chance to see because (laughs) you're so empowered and like, okay, I'm going to do my thing and whatever. It's true. And, you know, I... All hail and praise to my ancestors and my family that raised me because I was surrounded by love and acceptance and empowerment from from the day I was born until this day. And that is such an amazing gift, right, that everyone should get. I agree. But not everyone does. And so I'm very mindful um, of what a huge impact and gift that was and is. Anyway, so I finished at Brown. I had a history and I had a degree in history and um, religious studies. And I decided that I wanted to, well, I'll go to grad school. Why not? Uh, (laughs) 
Well, I mean, the bar is high, right? Because your parents yeah, are there, like... You know, I had had a lot of... I took a lot of time off during college, yeah. and I worked a lot on political campaigns mm, in New Jersey. Terrible. And I did um, I did some research work and schedule. I did, you know, I did everything. You start at the bottom and you do everything. But then I ended up working in compliance, which is making sure that all of the fundraising and spending follows all the rules. Mm. So my Virgo side really loved that. I hate that. But Just it's listening to it. Also mind numbing and nobody wants to do it. So they pay you very well to do oh. it. So I certainly could have had a career in that, but I just I just couldn't. So <laughs> I thought I'm going to go to grad school and um 9/11 had just happened and it felt very unsettled here. In New York metropolitan area. You were in um, New York when it happened? I was in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. uh, I had very close friends who, you know, ran away from the mm -hmm. collapsing buildings. And it, it, it felt very visceral and just unsettled mm -hmm. around here. My roommate from college had, uh, she was from Colorado and she needed a, she had moved back to Colorado and she needed a roommate. So she said, come on out and... I saved up some money and I packed everything in my blazer and I drove out to Colorado. Nice. <laughs> and I didn't do anything for a couple months because I had some money saved up and I was trying to figure out what I was doing. And I was living in the Vale Valley where at that time there was no middle class. So either you were <laughs> in the service industry or you were a really rich Re person yep. paying people in the service industry. So there wasn't a lot going on there. And I found this program at this little school in Boulder called Naropa, and they had just started a master's program in comparative mysticism. And I thought, Whoa. wow, that sounds amazing. Yes. <laughs> right? What do you do with a degree like that? I don't know, but it sounded really interesting. <laughs> and I have money saved up, so I have time to figure right. that out. So I applied to that, and I moved down to the Front Range in Colorado, and I started that program at Naropa. It was not for me. Um, it just, it, it didn't have the academic challenge that I was looking for. It's a great place and they do lots of great stuff there. It just wasn't what I wanted to do academically. So then I thought, well, what am I going to do? And I had a friend who had just finished journalism school. He was a friend from campaigns and he said, you should do this journalism master's program. It'll, you'll love it. So I applied for that and that was the only journalism school I applied to And I thought, I don't know if I'm going to get in, so I need a backup. So I took the LSATs, and I applied to law schools. Whoa. Got into the journalism program, went to New York. It was a very rough, it was a rough transition from a canyon in the front range of the Rockies. That sounds amazing. To New York City. Now, I had, you know, I grew up close to the city when I was in college. A lot of my friends had moved to the city. You know, I'd spent tons of time in the city. But living there is always different than visiting. And I was living in a little bit of a dodgy neighborhood. It was August. There was a garbage strike. <laughs> so there was... That means it smells a lot. garbage piled up everywhere the first day I got on the subway to go down for orientation. There's pools of blood on the subway car. Mm. Um, it was welcome to New York City. It was a really rough transition. Well, before we go there fully, um, while you were in the canyons, did you explore? Because there's something magical and spiritual about that zone of the U.S. 
Um, and so I wonder if through your, your years there, or your time there, you had the opportunity to explore this. 100%. Um, I, all kinds of stuff. You know, yoga classes in the canyon. This is before everyone and their mothers mm -hmm. doing yoga in their Lululemon business. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> you know, yeah, oh, there was all kinds of stuff going on. You know, I remember going to fires you know full moon fire circles in the snow and Whoa. you know writing down your intentions or your problems and throwing them into the fire and letting them go and you're underneath you know this blanket of stars like you've never seen before that sounds um, amazing little churches nestled in the mountains all kinds of stuff and you know i for me i connect with the divine or the sacred or the higher power, whatever you want to call it, I connect most in the moments of stillness and being in a place where the wilderness is all around you. That certainly felt much easier to do that, you know, making that connection seemed much easier than when you're in the middle of a busy place and a busy life and all those kinds of things. Yeah. Um, then you're yeah. thrown back to New York City. Right. And so it was always my intent to go live there for a year and then maybe go back to the mountains and, you know, find a magazine to write for or do something like that. Yeah. Um, live the life under the sun. Exactly. You know, the best thing about Colorado is 330 days of sun. That's amazing. A year. Anyway, so <laughs> I lived in New York for a year. I did this master's program in journalism. I wrote uh, my master's thesis on the resurgence of burlesque yes baby that was happening in new york and in other pockets of the country at the time i bet columbia couldn't believe it they're like what are you writing about <laughs> everybody it was so serious i mean it was it was a great program but everyone was so serious and so earnest and i knew that the only way that i was gonna power through and it's a one-year master's program so it was very intense yeah and i knew that the only way that i was going to survive it was to do things that weren't super serious. Not that, you know, hard-hitting investigative journalism is not important. It's incredibly important. I just needed to keep myself sane. So, yeah, everybody was writing their projects on, you know, this really important stuff. And I have a friend who you guys are going to hear from next season. Um, That's right. Who was, at the time, at sort of the forefront of this resurgence of burlesque. So, you know... Uh, there were six weeks I just I would go to clubs and do vodka shots and watch burlesque shows and interview people <laughs> and it was so much fun and then a lot of people got internships also so you could get credit for an internship and again everybody had all these serious internships and I got an internship at a tv show that was called celebrity justice <laughs> which is no longer around but it was the precursor to tmz I'm sure everyone oh. has heard of tmz so there was a show before that, that was produced by the same guy, and it was called Celebrity Justice. They were so excited to have an intern from Columbia. Um, <laughs> he just, I walked in for the interview, and they looked at me like I had 10 heads. I was like, this seems fun. It's only three blocks from my apartment. Let's do it. And <laughs> that was really interesting. And so, like, you'll see there's, there's this theme throughout mm -hmm. my life that I don't, make decisions based on 
necessarily logic or reason or thought out things. It's just, let's do what seems interesting. Well, and I would also add to that, it also talks to how comfortable you are on your own skin because you're not trying to fill and check mm. boxes. You're mm. like, I'm going to do what's right for me, yeah. which is, yeah. you know, burlesque and precursor of TMZ. <laughs> like, that's me. And I still have a celebrity justice mug. It's like <laughs> such a collector's item. Anyway, so... It was a crazy year, but I made it through. And during that time, I was, I started dating my husband. And that really threw a wrench in my plans to move back out west. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Ali. And I didn't really know what to do. And my mother said, you need to be a fool for love at least once in your life. And so I stuck around. And so then I um, decided that I actually didn't want to be a part of the media because the media landscape was really changing at that time, moving online. And I just wasn't drawn to it in the same way. So I ended up teaching in the writing program at Rutgers University. And How was that? It was fantastic. I mean, I went to an orientation and then I walked into a classroom. I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> But it was great. Um, it was, you know, it was, it was very interesting to be the sort of authority figure. Because mm. I was, I mean, I was 27, I think, 28. Yeah. So I wasn't that much older than um, the students. But it was also sort of like performance in a way. You know, you're up in front of a classroom. And I was mostly winging it. But it was great because it's... <laughs> You know, these kids were at a public university, and it's a really large university. So particularly when they were freshmen, they're sitting in classes that have four, five, six, seven hundred students, right? Wow. They're in these big lecture halls. But yet they're required to take this writing class that's capped at 20 students. The whole intent of the class is to get you to think for yourself and be able to express that through written language, which you know, to me is the whole point of education, so. Well, and also kind of perfect for you because you are someone that thinks for herself, right? Like, cause I feel like it yeah. all trickles down to that, right? Like you, your grandparents, like your ancestors in your house, the way that your parents like live their life and taught you by example, how to live your life is, be unapologetically you mm, and mm -hmm. yeah well and there's a lot of deprogramming to be done you know we all think many people feel as if they're thinking for themselves but they're still caught up in these stories that we're told and all the input that we get from the world around us right and we don't stop to wonder why we think the way we do about things my childhood but then certainly college made me really stop and examine that. And I think it's worth it for everybody if they have a point in their life when they can do that. It's only going to make their lived experience richer. And writing, it's right? so good, right? Because you're like putting it down, whatever is up on the cloud, like right. your brain, and right. then you're putting it down. And, and question everything. And at the end of your questioning, your mind doesn't have to change. Your opinions don't need to be any different. But via that question, you then understand why your opinions are what they are. Yeah. Right? And and that's a that's a really powerful thing. So I really, I enjoyed teaching. Um, but it was part-time. I had three different jobs. I was like managing an art gallery and I was working at my dad's law office. And I was teaching 
because I didn't really pay you anything. I did some work in communications. My husband and I decided to get married. We moved to Seattle for his job maybe a week after we got married. We lived there for six years. You taught there too. I taught there too. I taught in community colleges, which I loved so much because people in community college are there because they want to be there in a way that is not always the case with kids who are straight out of high school at a four-year university. And in your classes, you get um, you get a range of ages, yeah, which is so it makes everything richer. I, I can mean I can imagine, yes. Mm-hmm. And it was sure. a range of ages, and I was teaching at this community college in Bremerton, which is a town. It's a ferry ride from Seattle, and but a world away. Hmm. Uh, there's a former Navy base there, and this was in 2008 through 2010. I was teaching in Bremerton, and so I had I had students who were just coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Wow, a lot of military folks. I had older folks. I had people who were in rehab. I had people who were just out of rehab. I had homeless students. I had people right out of high school. It was just everything. And Would you say that that felt, um, feel like you started to connect with your own power? I mean, I know we've talked about how you always felt good in yourself, but I wonder if that role, because it has an inherent power to begin with. I felt like it was helping me to share and distribute power which is powerful right Uh, here's what i can walk you through like i'm not i don't know if i'm actually actually teaching you anything right this is a journey that we're going on Mm -hmm. together in these classes but i can help you walk this path that will help you become more powerful in your own existence and walk your own path with more power and that's incredibly rewarding right to let's all raise ourselves up together kind of thing so that was great and um it was fascinating and exhausting and (laughs) all those things Um, and then my son was born when we lived in seattle and by the time he was about a year old i realized here we are living all the way across the country we have all of our family connections were still here in new jersey we're going back and forth with this baby and and I was done with the clouds and the rain. Mm-hmm. So we decided to move back to New Jersey. And so we moved back and it was like Thanksgiving of 2011. We've been here since and I had a I had a daughter and I went back to teaching at Rutgers for a while until I realized that I wasn't enjoying it anymore. Mm. And what was the shift? I don't know. I, I think part of it was parenting two young children, doing this job that, you know, nominally wasn't very many hours a week, but I always had stacks of papers to grade Yeah, and trying to find a balance with that and commuting and just being done reading freshman essays. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there was also a shift in the student population, you know, um, kids who who were digital natives, who were more used to communicating via their phones, you know, made it very hard to get discussions, you know, meaningful discussions happening in classes. And I got sick of hearing myself talk and that kind of thing. I'm sick of hearing myself talk right now. Yeah. <laughs> so I said, you know what? I'm not enjoying this anymore. They're not paying me nearly enough to do this. And Yeah, it's not um, worth it. Yeah, so I took a break. I was sort of trying to figure out my next move and the pandemic hit. 
Thank you, COVID. You know, then was working on, you know, having a first grader trying to do online work and things like that. And so, and then I started working with the Chubby's Project, Mm -hmm. um, helped that become its own nonprofit. And now we're doing a podcast, and so that's that's the story. That's the that's the story outline. I'm gonna dig in deeper. Okay. Um, I want to hear about um, one time in particular because one of the many times that we tried to do this episode, this is out to all the folks. There's been some rich moments that we captured. You lived in your house, as you said, with your ancestors, and then you suffered a big loss. All very close to each other. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about at that a little bit and what you discovered after that happened. Uh, so my Uncle Joe, who was very much a grandfather figure in my life, mm-hmm. um, he died in October of 2015, and that was rough. It was good for him. It was his time, but it, was, it left a big hole. And then a couple months later in January... My grandmother who lived with us died, and then the next day, my other grandmother died. Again, it was their time. They were in their mid-90s, but having all three grandparents that I had known die within three months really shook. It shook me, and I I didn't even realize it at the time. It shook my foundation because I felt... I felt... Adrift. Mm-hmm. I felt like my anchor had just disappeared. To lose that whole generation of my closest ancestors in one fell swoop, it just, yeah, it, it shook me. So I got into a real funk and I felt really adrift. And this was, were you at Rutgers when all of this was happening? Yeah, I was teaching. Yes, in fact, I was in the middle of a class when my mother texted me to say that Uncle Joe had died, and we've had a lot of talks about how we shouldn't text about death. (laughs) Patricia, who still does that, I love you so much. So I was still teaching. I I felt like I was in a fog, and I felt rudderless and whatever other metaphors you want to use for that. And it wasn't until... I was in it. I guess it was like that spring that I thought, why am I feeling like this? What's going on? And I realized that it was it was grief, not only at the individual losses, but at the loss of this whole generation mm-hmm. of my people. So that spring, my husband and I, we were, we were at a birthday lunch for something. And a friend of a friend was talking about how he goes every year and takes a few days on the Appalachian Trail all by himself. And it's like his sort of reset for the year. And it really stuck with me. And we were driving home and I looked at my husband and I said, you know that thing that he talked about? I think I need to do that. It resonated and I couldn't even articulate why. So then I thought, okay, I'm going to do a trip. And then I realized, okay, I'm, you know, I was like 41 at the time. And I thought, okay, I used to like wilderness camping, but I'm old and I don't want to sleep on the ground and I don't want to carry everything on my back. I'm with you. So I started um, doing some exploring and I found out that in Europe and the British Isles and Ireland that there's this whole industry, this whole thing where people take walking holidays. 
And it's not something we do here, right? And anyway, it really spoke to me. I scheduled one. I went to Ireland, uh, where part of my family is from. And I had been there several times, and it's always really resonated with me there. So I did basically what I realized the last time we were recording this episode, (laughs) that I realized that what I did was really like a pilgrimage for my ancestors. I walked through the west of Ireland on these trails and all by myself and I didn't listen to anything I didn't talk to anybody it was just me and the mountains and the bogs and the streams and it made everything better yeah there's like a connection to everything and everyone right like Mm -hmm. the ancestors the Mm -hmm. present the future all in Mm -hmm. like one walk just being present and okay I'm here now I need to be at this place 12 miles away from here by the end of the day so I have somewhere to sleep. Yeah. Um, So sort of pushing myself a little bit and just being completely in the moment while also being free to sort of let everything in my head sort itself out or let it go or what have you and and i don't know if you realize it but i'm like listening to you now i'm like that also must be a challenge right because i can imagine if i were to do that i would get off in the morning and the way that i function i would be like i need to get there versus enjoying the walk which is what it's all about Mm -hmm. right it's such a good analogy to life too yes yes Because we all rush, you know, we have to be productive and we have to get through this list and we have to do all these things and just sometimes we just need to put one foot in front of the other and look around us. Hmm. Would you say that this is how you connect to spirituality now, nowadays? Because I know you keep doing that now. Yes. Yes. I mean, in the biggest way, I would say that's that's my ritual. Yeah. Um, It's a wonderful uh, ritual. it's, It's sort of, I look at it the way you would look at a retreat, you know, going to a monastery or retreat center or something mm-hmm. and just sitting so I try to do a walking retreat Amazing. you know and I connect on a daily basis I I connect in moments because you know the magic is all around us and we just need to open our ears and our eyes and our hearts and our spirits well I see you as like the oh the spiritual well Maybe that's better. Like, Mm. I feel like you hold space for a lot of people around you. So, yes, the spiritual well for those around you. Mm -hmm. Um, Because, um, so I can see how you could need once a year to go out and empty that well and, like, you know, make space for holding space for everybody else. Because you're very good at reading people's emotions and, like, reading people, period. Uh, but also you're very in tune as much as you put this front of like, you know, my Italian grandmother, great grandmother, I got. Don't fuck with me. Yeah, don't fuck with me. <laughs> um, there's this like sensitive, very intuitive level under that I don't know that a lot of people know of. And I think that your people know of. So you like oh, they yeah. come to you for that, like your fortress. Yes, I mean, I think, yeah, I I hold a lot of space. I try to be open and giving for, you know, any of the people that need me to help them figure out what they need and give them support and care and 
all those things because that's important. That's what we're supposed to do for each other. Yeah. Right. And, you know, you and I were both in that sort of, I hate this term, but it's appropriate, but in that sandwich generation place. Yeah. Right. Where we have parents or in-laws who are aging and we have younger children. And so it can be exhausting to provide all of the nourishment both literal and figurative Mm -hmm. that everyone needs from us but it's what we need to do and what we should do so how do we how do we construct our own lives so we have the tools and the space and the power that we need to in order to do that job yeah and, and it tricky. starts by like and taking care of yourself. Yeah, and sometimes it means leaving them all to their own devices for a little while. Yeah. And recharging. So when do you feel powerful, Liz? All the time. <laughs> Am I surprised that that's your answer? No, I'm not. Mo- uh, most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes, I think for me, the trick is I... Um, sometimes too lazy to exert that power. Fair enough. Um, I feel as if the power is within me at all times, anytime I want to use it. That's not the reality for a lot of people I, out there. I know. So that is powerful per se, right? I know. Yeah. Yeah. And I have been incredibly lucky. There's a lot of circumstances in my life that have lent themselves to being able to have that view. Yeah. And it's a view that everyone, you know, it's a way that everybody can feel, but it's harder for some than others because not everyone is given the space or the means to do that. And that's one of the things that I love so much about what we're doing here, right? Because we are creating space for people to tell their stories and their truths. And I think in doing that, they are able to reflect on their own power Right. Telling your own story is a powerful thing. And we don't have a lot of spaces for that where you can do it in this kind of format. It's not just in bits and bites. Or one aspect of your life. Like this is where you're powerful. Exactly. Versus you as a whole. Right. Being. So you're looking at your experiences holistically. Yeah. And then allowing our listeners to share these stories so they can know, A, that there are other people who have had experiences that may be similar to theirs or seeing the way that people live through their experiences and find their own power. Yeah. And then maybe reflecting on their own life and their choices and feeling good about them or seeing ways they can change or whatever they get from it. Right. I think that these stories have a lot of power. I agree. I feel like um, if we've gotten any feedback, it's been, it helps me admire or be grateful for the women that I have in my life mm-hmm. and want to share their stories. So. And I was just talking with someone this morning who was saying that they were, you know, on their way to speak to a third grade class about, you know, empowered women. And, mm-hmm. and she was saying that she had been listening to the podcast to get herself in the right frame of mind to go and speak to these third grade girls about how they can own their power. And that's, that's pretty awesome. amazing. So yes. thank you to all the guests who have joined us. I agree. Thank you so this much. Season. And it's not easy to put yourself out there. You got to be brave. This is a big ask, you know, to sort of be vulnerable and lay this out there for the world to hear. Even listening to these women, it proves to me even more so that 
we need to keep doing it mostly because most of these women when we ask about power or when we ask about you know the struggles it's hard for them to own onto like their own power and mm -hmm. there's still like things that we may say or I, I notice it on myself like unconsciously where I like say a phrase and you'll be like wait what did you just say and I'm like oh shit yeah you're right like mm -hmm. I shouldn't be thinking this way so um I hope that that's yeah. happening to the listeners as well like yeah. listening and be like oh yeah you're right I've been thinking like this because I've been conditioned to think this way we're gonna deprogram the world one woman at a time love I'm it not afraid So thank you everyone and stay tuned because more things are happening and season two is already in the works. So we're not going anywhere. We're just taking a quick break and letting you catch up with all of our episodes. And look for season two around the time of the summer solstice. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Liz. Thanks, Olivia.